0: All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, now in the wee hours of December 10th, 2021. And actually, uh, I'm not really going to be ranting tonight. I'm going to be offering one hour and 20 minutes of archival material from uh, a couple of months ago. Back on um, October 9th of this year, I um, participated, through the miracle of Zoom, in the ninth biennial international Herbert Marcuse Society conference. This year, on the theme of alternative futures, Marcuse's dialectic of technology, the conference actually took place at the University of Arizona in Tempe, but um, as I say, I participated in a um, a panel via Zoom here from my apartment in New York City, and the panel I was asked to participate in was entitled The Responsibility to Protect, R2P, in the 21st century. So, uh, again, exploring the whole uh, question of the various dilemmas and contradictions of so-called humanitarian intervention, something which we've explored on this podcast before. Uh, my presentation was entitled, For Solidarity Against Dictators and Campism. But it's actually immediately preceded by the presentation by um, Javier Sethnis, who was um, the chair of the panel and one of the organizers of the conference. His presentation was entitled, Realism, Egalitarianism, and Internationalism. And finally, we were supposed to have been joined by a woman by the name of Anner G., also by Zoom, from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, speaking on the responsibility to protect in Tigray. Unfortunately, Anner was not able to join us, as you can imagine, there are, uh, shall we say, unexpected contingencies from time to time in Ethiopia these days. So um, it was just Javier Sethness and myself. And in Javier's presentation, which comes first, he actually uh, discusses uh, Herbert Marcuse and how he enters into the um, how he enters into the whole question which was under discussion. Because uh, you know, Marcuse, of course, had been one of the leading lights of the Frankfurt School, one of the uh, Pioneers of critical theory and the New Left, but he also worked with the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor agency to the CIA, during the Second World War, and was, you know, in later years completely open and unapologetic about this, saw it as, uh, you know, necessary for the struggle against fascism. Even as he later, of course, came to oppose the U.S. war in Vietnam etc. So, uh, to a certain extent, Javier's presentation is kind of providing the theoretical overview, and uh, mine is kind of bringing it down to brass tacks here in the real world and current various geopolitical crises which confront us. Uh, I was a little bit, you know, I'm going to just confess, I was a little bit frustrated and disappointed that, uh, you know, for the, uh, the huge platform that all of the, you know, these Campists and tankies, forgive me for using jargon, but it should be clear about what, what I mean by that, or it certainly will be after you listen to the the presentations, have a huge platform on the left today. And those of us who are dissidents from that extremely dangerous tendency have such a small platform. Uh, I could see that in the, um, the classroom in Tempe, Arizona, where the conference was actually "quote unquote" taking place, I think there were two or three people in that room, <laughs> and then there were maybe uh, another um, six, I believe, was the number, who are uh, participating via Zoom. That is to say, following the panel via Zoom. So, uh, in uh, you know the hopes that more people will actually uh, listen to it if we get it up there on the on the interwebs for um, posterity. <clears throat> Maybe what we said will uh, begin to make at least a little bit of an impact, because <laughs> it felt a little bit like we were spe- spewing into the void, not that uh, that isn't something I do every week. But anyway, um, once again, in the spirit of um, quality over quantity, herewith, this is actually um, on the YouTube channel of Javier Castro, Javier Sethnes Castro is the fellow's fu- full name, entitled The Responsibility to Protect, Parentheses, R2P, Close Parentheses, in the 21st Century. And you're about to hear it.
1: All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks to the organizers of the Society Conference. And thanks to the co-panelists, to Bill, uh, to Nicole for tech facilitation, and to audience members. Um, so today we're here to talk about the responsibility to protect otherwise known as R2P. And um, what I'm gonna do right now is uh, introduce our speakers and um, we'll go from there. Actually, uh, we were originally going to have a third speaker and an Ethiopian comrade. Uh, However, she could not join us today due to political repression at home. In fact, uh, related to kind of what we're talking about. So uh, it's unfortunate that we won't be able to get her perspective on what's happening in Ethiopia and specifically in the Tigray region. Um, and of course, neither Bill nor I are either Ethiopian or experts in any way on Ethiopia. But um, with that said, we can speak to some of the, some of the issues. So um, I'll be speaking first. Uh, my name is Javier Sethness. I'm a primary care provider, the author and editor of four volumes, including Eros and Revolution, The Critical Philosophy of Herbert Marcuse, and Imperial Life Revolution Against Climate Catastrophe. I'll then be followed by Bill Weinberg who is an award-winning 30-year veteran journalist in the fields of human rights, indigenous peoples, drug policy, ecology, and war. He's the author of Homage to Chiapas, The New Indigenous Struggles in Mexico, and War on the Land, Ecology and Politics in Central America, among other books. He's at work on a new title on indigenous struggles in the anti-nations. He blogs daily on global autonomy struggles at countervortex.org. Okay. Oh, we have Sergio now. So Okay, so uh, I'm going to begin my comments. Uh, so the title of my uh, presentation is uh, Realism, Egalitarianism, and Internationalism. So on this roundtable, we will be focusing on ongoing war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ethiopia and Syria. Well, not so much Ethiopia anymore, but uh, and we will be presenting anti-authoritarian views on the doctrine of the responsibility to. R2P. Just as the genocides perpetrated in the 1990s in Bosnia and Rwanda did, so violations of international humanitarian law uh, raise the controversial questions of R2P and humanitarian intervention today. In the Tigray region of Ethiopia, since November 2020, Nobel Peace Prize winning Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has overseen a genocidal counterinsurgent campaign against not only the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, whom his administration has designated a terrorist organization, but also against the civilian population of the region, provoking mass famine and displacement. In parallel, Bashar al-Assad and his Russian and Iranian allies have drowned the Syrian revolution in blood. Over the past decade, up to a million Syrians have been killed. Undoubtedly, such crimes follow from the authoritarian logic of state sovereignty and the non-intervention principle in international society, both of which form part of what the critical sociologist Max Weber described as the iron cage of capitalist modernity. In this presentation, I will begin by analyzing the political and intellectual support provided by many of the Frankfurt School Critical Theorists to the Allied war effort against Nazism and consider the neither Washington nor Moscow approach taken by most of these thinkers during the subsequent Cold War. I will then compare these concepts to anarchist ideals of internationalism. In place of the conspiracism, nihilism, and anti-humanism that animates so much of what passes for left commentary on global issues of war, exploitation, and domination in our time, I will propose egalitarianism, literary realism, and anti-authoritarianism as important value principles for left internationalism. Lastly, I will consider the implications of such a position for the responsibility to protect, or R2P, in the face of gross human rights violations today. As we know, most, but not all, of the Frankfurt School theorists were German Jews who had to flee their homes in the early 1930s as the Weimar Republic collapsed and Adolf Hitler seized power. Most resettled in New York where director Max Horkheimer had arranged for the Institute for Social Research to be relocated to Columbia University. Theodore Adorno and Franz Neumann initially moved to England, where the Fabian socialist Sidney Webb, R.H. Taney, and Harold Lasky had arranged for a London office to be opened for the Institute. Uniquely among the critical theorists, Walter Benjamin did not survive his bid to cross the Pyrenees Mountain in September 1940 and pass through Francois Spain to reach Lisbon where he was to take a steamer to New York and reunite with his comrades. Once the relationship between Horkheimer and Marcuse soured in the early 1940s, when Max suddenly announced that he would partner with Adorno on Dialectic of Enlightenment, after having indicated to Herbert that he would be the co-writer and encouraging him to move with his family across country to join the Horkheimer in Los Angeles. Marcuse began working on philosophical studies of social change with Neumann, as well as his own investigations into Nazism, These included some social implications of modern technology, state and individual under national socialism, and the new German mentality. When Neumann joined the U.S. wartime intelligence agency, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, in 1942, Ragusa was not far behind. Together with
2: fellow exile Otto Kirchheimer,
1: the trio proposed a radical denazification program for the post war US administration to implement, but it was duly ignored. After the OSS demobilized at the end of the war, Marcuse went on to work at the State Department until 1951, at which time he entered academia. Two decades later, when the equivalent of today's anti imperialist critics used Marcuse's tenure at the OSS to question his radical credentials, the critical theorist proudly defended his work there, noting that. Quote, the war then was a war against fascism. And consequently, I haven't had the, I haven't the slightest reason for being ashamed of having assisted in it. End quote. After all, we must not forget that World War II, besides being an inter-imperialist war with global dimensions, was also a people's war against foreign occupation, totalitarian dictatorship, and genocidal oppression, both in Europe and Asia. After the Allied victory, At the birth of the Cold War, Horkheimer and Adorno returned to what by then had become West Germany, while Marcuse remained in the US to research and teach at different universities. After serving the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal as researcher for the Chief Prosecutor, Neumann died tragically in a car accident in Switzerland in 1954. Generally speaking, over time and space, the critical theorists maintained their anti authoritarian critique of both Western capitalism and Stalinist totalitarianism in keeping with the third campus Trotskyist slogan, Neither Washington nor Moscow. Nonetheless, Horkheimer slipped up, as we shall see. Marcuse wrote Soviet Marxism in 1958 as one of the first critical treatments of the USSR from within the Marxist tradition. And in One Dimensional Man from 1964, He condemns the mobilization of stifling conformity on both sides of the Iron Curtain. He was a fierce critic of U.S. governmental policy toward Castro's Cuba and of the Vietnam War, as well as a supporter of the May 1968 uprising in France, Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, and the Vietnamese and Chinese revolutions. The same could not be said of Horkheimer, who took a turn for the worse toward life's end by resisting calls for the Institute to condemn the Vietnam War celebrating German-American Friendship Week in 1967, and going so far as to support the U.S. war on Vietnam as an ostensible means of checking the propagation of Maoist political movements. So now I will uh, turn to internationalist principles. Taking from critical theory, as well as anarchism, literary realism, and existentialism, I wish to raise certain internationalist principles for consideration at our conference, which is dedicated to alternative futures. These include enlightened principles of humanism and rationalism, Jacques Ancier's emphasis on egalitarianism, and Love Tolstoy's anti-militarist critique. If the instrumentalizing view of humanity inherent to statecraft and social hierarchy is based on what the existentialist psychotherapist Irving Yalom termed the, quote-unquote, galactic galactic view that reduces humanity to pawns on a chessboard, or what the anarcho-feminist Ursula K. Le Guin called, quote, seeing with the hawk's eyes and being without self, end quote. In other words, quote-unquote, the universe of power, then humanizing frameworks of care may assist in the struggle against oppression. Along these lines, Poncier's political theory emphasizes the equal capacity everyone has to intervene in politics, while the literary realist style featured by Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy in such artworks as the Sevastopol sketches, the Cossacks, and War and Peace, condemns the militarism practiced by states in a highly tragic and humanist light. Especially in the protest novel, War and Peace, Tolstoy conveys his critique of inter war, toxic masculinity, heterosexism, autocratic domination and class exploitation. Such realism is effectively humanism. Rather than function to rationalize state abuses in keeping with the so-called realist theory of international relations theory, it remains true to Adorno's concern stated in negative dialectics for the, quote, unbearable physical agony to which individuals are exposed, end quote, through atrocities. Historically, anarchist internationalism has involved coordination of and support for self-organized autonomous movements of peasants and workers. This strategy has been used by anarchists of collectivist, syndicalist, and communist persuasions in the International Workingmen's Association, otherwise known as the First International, the anarchist Saimere International, the Anti-Authoritarian International, and the International Workers Association of IWA which continues organizing to this day. Anarchist internationalists have also supported armed struggle against oppression across borders in many different contexts, such as the 19th century Polish uprisings against Tsarist domination, the Paris Commune of 1871, the popular Cuban struggle against Spanish and U.S. imperialism, the Mexican, Russian, and Spanish revolutions, the French resistance to Nazi occupation, both the Algerian independence movement, as well as those French soldiers who deserted their posts during the Algerian war, the neo-Zapatista struggle for indigenous autonomy and the Syrian and Rojula revolutions of the past decade. On the one hand, in stark contrast to Marxist Leninists, anti-authoritarian internationalists have typically striven to remain distant from so-called anti-imperialist, national socialist and or state capitalist regimes such as the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, or the People's Republic of China. That being said, Noam Chomsky effectively supported the Khmer Rouge, who in the late 1970s caused the deaths of millions of people in just three and a half years, before he hailed its ouster by the Vietnamese after the fact as a striking example of humanitarian intervention. However much, Chomsky's contrarian approach, which is not only focused on the Khmer Rouge, but we see it reproduced uh, with his coverage of the Srebrenica massacre and also the situation in Syria. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, however much this has harmed the left's relationship to real life atrocities, inspiring the denialism of today, it should be taken as anomalous among anti authoritarians. On the other hand, anarchists have also generally maintained independence from liberal Western governments, although the track records of the German theorist Rudolf Rocker, who abandoned anarcho-syndicalism uh, for what he called libertarian revisionism at life's end, or of the French Unionist, Georges Sorel, who proposed a marriage of revolutionary syndicalism with ultra-nationalism as a strategy to destroy, destroy bourgeois society, while instead ending up Inspiring fascism. Provide these provide important lessons in this sense. Both um, Rocker and Surrell for both reformists and revolutionaries. Moving on to humanitarian intervention. Solidarist International Society Theory proposes that, regardless of questions of legality, there is a moral duty to forcibly intervene in situations of extreme humanitarian intervention whether owing to war crimes and or crimes against humanity. Humanitarian intervention, in this sense, can be viewed as a delayed reaction on the part of global society to its guilt over the horrors of the Holocaust and World War II. At the 2005 UN World Summit, 170 states formally adopted the legal doctrine of R2P, which stipulates, and I quote, "Collective action through the Security Council, should peaceful means be inadequate, and national authorities manifestly fail to protect their populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity, as such, and that's anyway, as such, R two P doctrine is a combination of solidarism and geopolitical, but not literary realism. While a quote incomplete and poorly defined concept in the um, in the judgment of Yasmin Alawi. Uh, end quote, it is at least, it at least establishes a minimum standard against atrocious human rights violations. Non compliance in this sense could trigger a multilateral intervention designed to use proportional force to compel a halt to such crimes. At the same time, the state actors that would be intervening are required to have humanitarian rather than strategic motivations for their effective violation of the otherwise overriding sovereignty principle. This excludes the US invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq from being instances of R2P. In reality, R2P is understood as an exception to the fundamental principles of the UN Charter, which ban the use of force between states. As a result, humanitarian intervention is reserved for what R.J. Vincent calls, quote, extraordinary oppression, not the day-to-day variety, end quote. Even so, This begs the question of why poverty, patriarchy, and exploitation should be normalized as acceptable in this framing that claims to oppose ultraviolence. The confused answer would likely have to do with diplomacy and respect for value pluralism. After all, even in the rare instances on which it would be considered and operationalized, R2P is supposed to be based on incrementalism and gradualism in the application of force rather than the defeat of a state. Moreover, to limit the application of R2P to the whims of UN Security Council members hampers its potential, as these states are, by definition, often involved in the very atrocities that require redress. They rightly fear that any legal precedent for humanitarian intervention could be used against them in the future. For this reason, Yasmin Nalawi champions the Uniting for Peace doctrine as an alternative whereby the UN General Assembly can take up questions of R2P when the Security Council refuses or otherwise fails to do so. Humanitarian intervention can be forcible or consensual, violent or nonviolent. Nicholas Wheeler and Alex Bellamy view non-forcible humanitarian intervention, like the work of Médecins Sans Frontières, as a, quote, progressive manifestation of the globalization of world politics, end quote. No doubt there. Yet, in the face of mass atrocities being committed today in Syria and to pacific forms of intervention may serve more as band-aids than help to address the state oppression perpetuating human agony. For instance, I quote Jabour in The Lancet, the conflict in Syria has caused one of the largest humanitarian crises since World War II, end quote. This is arguably due to global conformity with the principle of non-intervention, even and especially on the so-called left, particularly in the traumatic wake of the Iraq invasion. Paradoxically, then, the oppressive concept of sovereignty is being used by Assad, Putin, and their backers to shield accountability for the mass atrocities they have carried out in Syria. And I quote Horkheimer and Adorno in the Dialectic of Enlightenment. Thus, Hitler demands the right to practice mass murder in the name of the principle of sovereignty under international law, which tolerates any act of violence in another country." But perhaps, short of a global anarchist revolution, this dynamic should work the other way around. In other words, sovereignty could be cancelled in light of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. Applying principles of egalitarianism, literary realism, and anti-authoritarianism to left internationalism in the 21st century has great creative potential. While we cannot predict how this proposal might play out, support for R2P and humanitarian intervention could justifiably form part of the program. Of course, the idea that anarchists should compromise with the state, even on a question so pressing as international fascist atrocities, has a dire history see the fate of the Spanish Revolution and Civil War when the cnt Phi joined the Republic. This risk of compromise and self-contradiction must however, be balanced against the risk of violating one's internationalism and even humanity by ignoring and or guarding silence about ultraviolence and other extreme forms of oppression happening elsewhere in the world. Naturally though, these do not have to be the only two options. For instance, in Rojava, volunteers have joined the International Freedom Battalion, echoing the fighters in the international brigades who participated in the Spanish Civil War. I personally agree with the Afghan-American professor, Zahir Wahab, that UN peacekeepers should have intervened as UN NATO forces left Afghanistan to prevent the Taliban from taking over, as it has. Moreover, though flawed, the UN humanitarian intervention in Bosnia in the 1990s prevented the extermination of the Bosnian Muslims, at the hands of serving nationalists And a similar analysis could be made of the 2014 intervention by the US and the PKK in Iraq's Sinjar Mountains to rescue Yazidis from the Islamic State forces in 2014. Undoubtedly, these are all controversial questions. My perspective is that anti-authoritarian principles of egalitarianism, literary realism, and humanism represent much needed infusions for left internationalism that the responsibility to protect is direly needed to address political violence across the globe, whether in Syria, Afghanistan, Palestine, Kashmir, Tigray, Burma, Myanmar, China, or elsewhere. And that political radicals should reconsider their commitment in many cases to bourgeois principles of non-intervention. Let's discuss.
2: Okay, Bill
0: up. Am I indeed <clears throat> okay? Can I be heard? Okay. Yes. Good. 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 Well, I'm just going to argue the uh, the thesis that uh, in our whole approach to this to this question, that you know true solidarity with those in war zones around the world entails first and foremost, understanding local context, rather than viewing the conflicts exclusively through the lens of geopolitics and campism. Now, understanding the agendas of the great powers is critical, but letting that be the sole determinant of our analysis is a betrayal of the people on the ground. For insight on Syria, Libya, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, or Taiwan, it is imperative to listen first and foremost to the voices from the region, neither governments, regardless of which camp they are in, nor Western talking heads, whether of the left, right, or center. Unfortunately, campism has come to define the consensus position of the left establishment in the West. In 2016, when the Syrian city of Aleppo was being massively bombed by Assad regime and Russian warplanes, the people of the city took to social media as best they could to demand a no-fly zone be established to protect them and even massively burned tires in the streets to create a haze over the city that would obscure ground targets and create a de facto no-fly zone. And today, the people of uh, Burma and of Tigray in Ethiopia facing genocidal situations are similarly taking to social media as best they can to demand P2P R2P, Responsibility to Protect, measures. And in each of these cases, the Western left has, with varying degrees of unanimity and enthusiasm, lined up with the oppressors and aggressors and betrayed the victims. Now, if you wanted to oppose a uh, a no-fly zone for Aleppo, and I understand the arguments against it, in terms of, uh, you know, the risk of um, superpower confrontation, confrontation and Syria becoming a flashpoint for a, uh, a wider world war. But uh, if you want to oppose a no-fly zone for Aleppo, that increases the responsibility on you to oppose Assad and Putin's bombardment of the city. But the uh, the leftists at the time, back when Aleppo was being bombed in 2016, um. <clears throat> Uh, who um, opposed the no-fly zone, they did not oppose Assad and Putin's bombardment of the city. They saw their responsibility merely as to oppose the no-fly zone, and all too many, that is, to to oppose the merely proposed and hypothetical no-fly zone as opposed to the very real bombardment of the city. And all too many went so far as to justify the bombardment. For instance, by making uh, false claims, such as we saw in the writings of Stephen Cohen in the Nation magazine, that the uh, bombardment was aimed at ISIS. Now ISIS was not even in the city at the time. When they tried to establish a foothold in the city a year earlier, They had been driven out of the city by the same Free Syrian Army rebels that the bombardment was aimed at. So this claim that the uh, bombardment was um, against ISIS is an example of what sinister spy agencies call black propaganda, not mere distortions, but outright lies. And um, did uh, fairness and accuracy in reporting, fair, call this out? No, on the contrary, they went along with this distortion, and they have actively promoted as some kind of um, truth-telling alternative to the corporate media, Assad regime flax, such as Rania Kalik and her Kremlin front platform, in the now, quote-unquote, which is directly funded by R.T., the Russian state propaganda organ. Then in 2017 and on into 2018, the U.S. began massively bombing a Syrian city, the city of Raqqa, virtually destroying it, just as um, Putin and Assad had virtually destroyed Aleppo. And uh, once again, amazingly, The so called anti war left in the West did not protest because the US was bombing the city because it was controlled by ISIS, an enemy of the Assad regime. The US bombed Raqqa relentlessly for months with a horrific toll in civilian casualties to utter silence from the supposed anti war left in the West. And the same anti-war left which did not protest when the U.S. relentlessly bombed Raqqa for months did mobilize the protest on the two occasions that the U.S. bombed Assad's air bases in response to chemical attacks with no civilian casualties. So uh, the uh, so-called, you know, the opposition to so-called humanitarian intervention certainly is not motivated by a concern for civilian casualties on the ground. It seems to be motivated entirely by fealty to the foreign policy aims of Vladimir Putin. And uh, such, uh, you know, icons of... Uh, supposed left-wing commentary in the West, including Aaron Mate, Jimmy Dore, Katie Halper, and Roger Waters, have all uh, promoted, you know, so-called false flag theories about how Assad's chemical attacks were actually carried out by the Syrian rebels against themselves as a provocation—a thesis that flies in the face of logic, as well as the findings of the Organization for the the, uh, Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and every bonafide human rights group that has looked into the attacks. And now, disgracefully, similar opponents of, uh, excuse me, similar exponents of um, this um, campus left or pseudo left are now uh, predictably lining up behind the Burmese junta. Now that activists on the ground in Burma are calling for R2P after massacres of pro-democracy protesters have left over a thousand dead and the country is beginning to slide into civil war. Back in April when the massacres were mounting, Ben Norton of the gray zone tweeted and I quote, basically all English language media reports on the death toll in Myanmar are based on unverifiable claims by a pro-Western opposition group, the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, AAP, which is supported by the U.S. government's NED, that's National Endowment for Democracy, a CIA cutout. And later that month, when uh, Twitter launched um, an emoji for the so-called Milk Tea Alliance, one of the uh, pro-democracy civil opposition groups on the ground in, um, in Burma or Myanmar, Norton tweeted, quote, the U.S. regime change network has kicked into high gear targeting Myanmar. The Silicon Valley social media corporations are functionally an arm of the U.S. government, pushing regime change propaganda on its behalf, end quote. So, you know, even here in a situation seemingly as clear cut as Burma, where there has been a, uh, you know, a military coup d'etat and a a civil pro-democracy movement, which is trying to overturn it. The uh, this, the the campus left, which you know howls about uh, you know um, about uh, for instance the regime in Venezuela is being you know undermined by coup plotters, is rallying around the military junta, which has illegally seized power in Burma. And now we similarly see those who are calling for R two P in Ethiopia coming under attack. And here it's particularly ironic because I uh, you know Ethiopia has actually been an ally and a proxy of US imperialism for the past 30 years although the alliance is now somewhat frayed. <clears throat> Just recently uh, a uh, so-called Pan-Africanist commentator by the name of Ann Garrison was interviewed uh, on the LA Progressive website in which she uh, dissed our comrades from uh, Horn Anarchists, one of whom Anna was supposed to be um, speaking with us on this panel. And again, I'm going to quote what Ann Garrison was uh, quoted in the uh, LA Progressive website. "Quote: I've just come across these anarchists from the Horn of Africa on a Pacific Pacifica radio broadcast and on Twitter, where their handle is Horn Anarchist. They they seem to exist." to advocate for US-NATO intervention in the Horn of Africa. And their Twitter banner image is three slogans, Ethiopia out of Tigray, Eritrea out of Tigray, and R2P Tigray. They want Ethiopia and Eritrea out of Tigray and Western military in. R2P is an acronym for Western Responsibility to Protect, a doctrine promulgated by imperialists and relatively innocent do-gooders at the UN to justify military interventions that violate national sovereignty in the name of, defeat- of defending human rights." End quote. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, uh, a very telling construction because it explicitly places national sovereignty before human rights, which is pretty damn scary and indicates how far out of whack Western progressive values have become. In addition to, uh, you know, conflating the demands of, uh, you know, activists on the ground facing literally genocidal situations with, uh, you know, Western imperialism. Now I have to emphasize here that R2P does not immediately have to mean military intervention. There are actually three pillars of R2P. Pillar one recognizes the responsibility of states to uphold human rights within their borders. Pillar two recognizes the responsibility of other states to aid a given state in fulfilling this responsibility. And it is only pillar three that calls for military intervention by other states if the state in question still fails to live up to its responsibilities. So if you don't want things to escalate to pillar three, you might want to pay some attention to pillars one and two, and actually put some pressure on the governments of Syria, Burma, Ethiopia, and China, to desist from mass atrocity crimes, precisely as we have long been attempting to put some pressure on the Western powers and their client states, such as Israel and Colombia, to do the same thing, to desist from mass atrocity crimes. And if you argue that we have a greater responsibility to pressure the Western states and their clients as citizens of the West, okay, I agree. But that doesn't mean that we have no responsibilities to the victims in Syria, Burma, and Ethiopia. And it certainly, certainly does not mean that we can cover up or make excuses for the atrocities carried out by these regimes. And again, there's a certain irony to even mentioning Ethiopia in this context at all, because as I say, until very recently, it has in fact been a client and proxy of the West. <clears throat> and we can be faced with a very real challenge in the uh, the case of Taiwan, which is certainly in the news at the moment, and is a conflict which um, you know, does have the terrifying potential to escalate to a nuclear war between the U.S. and China. And uncritically embracing the People's Republic of China claim to sovereignty over the island is going to do absolutely nothing to arrest or slow the escalation. The Taiwanese must be given a voice first and foremost And I really first, uh, you know, began following the internal politics in Taiwan with the uh, emergence of the Sunflower Movement in uh, in 2014, a um, student youth movement which actually occupied the parliament building in Taiwan to halt a uh, pending trade treaty with the People's Republic of China, a movement which was directly inspired by Occupy Wall Street, although it took things much further and actually achieved its aim of halting the trade treaty. And it is such pro-democracy and pro-independence forces on the ground in Taiwan who are our natural allies, not the dictatorship of the People's Republic of China. And the real challenge for uh, for progressives where this whole question is, is concerned in the coming years is going to be to find progressive dissident elements to build solidarity with within China. Rebel peasants who are resisting the enclosure of their traditional lands by the nouveau riche elite, the workers organizing wildcat strikes in the free trade zones of Shenzhen, and the Marxist and Maoist students who have organized in support of these striking workers and in many cases, paid for it with their freedom, having been imprisoned or disappeared by the regime. <clears throat> Take a hit of my coffee, one moment. Uh, before I close, I'm going to uh, invoke a... Um, A piece of literature, a a book of fiction. Something I don't often do, but um, the I'm going to do it here. In this case, it's very uh, uh, something directly to say what we're discussing. Anybody out there has read the book *The Iron Heel* by uh, Jack London, which was actually written uh, before World War One, written in uh, in 1908, and it was kind of a a work of future fiction, anticipating um, workers' struggle and world revolution against a a dictatorship of the industrial interest in the, in the years to come. And in that book, he actually anticipated the U.S. going to war with Germany. He actually had Germany rather than Japan bombing Pearl Harbor in a sneak attack. But the disaster of war was avoided as the working classes of both the United States and Germany shut down their respective countries in a general strike in solidarity with each other and against their respective rulers. The American and German bosses were forced to abandon their war plans in the face of international working class solidarity. <clears throat> and uh, this is the kind of solidarity from below that we should be striving for, and that I submit is the only thing that holds out any real hope of undoing the pathological state of permanent war and avoiding an eventual escalation to the unthinkable. So uh, you know, I submit that we must uh, reject the dualistic thinking that sees you know, the new world order of globalized imperialism uh, you know, posed in Manichean manner against the old world order of the Westphalian model of sacrosanct state sovereignty, we must reject that as a false choice. We should reject both. And if rallying around the prior, that is to say globalized imperialism, because of the threat of the latter, sacrosanct state sovereignty, which is a blank check to uh, commit mass atrocity crimes, if that's an error, then equally so, is the reverse, rallying around uh, sacrosanct state um, sovereignty due to the threat of globalized imperialism. It's a false choice and we have to reject both. Now, the way to do so isn't always so clear cut and easy. It requires real grappling, but uh, certainly it begins with actually listening to the people on the ground with uh, in uh, places like Syria, Libya, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, or Taiwan. And if they are actually calling for some kind of outside intervention in the face of um, genocidal situations and mass atrocity crimes, we should be grappling with the reasons that we are, that, that they are doing so, rather than merely dismissing and demonizing them as pawns or agents of Western imperialism. <clears throat> That's my story, I'm sticking to it. Thank you. All right, uh, so I
1: just want to make a few comments uh, on your presentation, Bill, before we go to the uh, question and answer period. Sure. Uh, so I think that, um, I'm just gonna be here so you can um, So I think definitely uh, what you're talking about with, with regards to the outright lies that are often uh, espoused by uh, anti imperialists or pseudo anti imperialists, as Rohini Hensman calls them. Uh, definitely the propaganda they are often engaged in, I agree, is outright lies. But if you look at the history of it, we can see uh, going back 100 years, we had the conference in March dedicated to the, um, the, centenary, the centennial of the Kronstadt uprising during the Russian Revolution, in which the Group of red sailors who had been, to a large degree, the vanguard of the Russian Revolution, especially in October nineteen seventeen, rose up against the Bolshevik autocracy. Four years later, uh, calling on the um, calling for uh, the principles of the revolution to actually be institutionalized, or rather, to be uh, observed rather than uh, endlessly deferred, as the Bolsheviks were wont to do. And so, um, I think it's, there's a very clear parallel here between the moment that we're in right now and also that moment. Because we see that uh, authoritarians are maligning true revolutionaries and engaging in what um, the historian Richard Stites called social prophylaxis for the audiences. There's to say, oh, you can't listen to them because they are, as you're saying, as you're describing Bill, and imperialist, CIA, NED, whatever. So for that reason, we can't listen to anything they have to say. So this is very simple. I mean, the Bolsheviks said that the Kronstadt sailors were white as agents, that they were foreign imperialists and stuff like that. None of it was true, you know? Historically speaking, the investigations and everything, none of that was true. But it's very easy for those in power or those who are committed to um, systems of oppression and so on, to simply go with that kind of an argument.
0: Right, well, there's a critical difference here. I mean, on one hand, your absolutely legitimate analogy, and um, it's kind of frustrating how, uh, you know, little things have changed since, uh, since way back then, more than a, more than a century ago now. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Russia had actually had a revolution, whereas, uh, you know, um, in Syria, the revolution is against the entrenched one-family dynasty that has been ruling the country since nineteen, I believe the the, the coup d'état that brought Hafez al-Assad to power was in nineteen seventy one. So, uh, in uh, it's 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 it's, it's if, if if this error was somewhat forgivable in um, in nineteen twenty one, it is significantly less forgivable in the context of Syria in twenty twenty one, or in the context of Burma. Absolutely where where the, uh, you, the you you can't even pretend that it's in defense of a revolution it's in defense of of an, of an entrenched uh, you know uh, dictatorship in the case of Syria and a, and, a, uh, and a and a new um, uh, you know military junta which has come to power through a coup d'etat in Burma
1: and um... Speaking to the uh, anti-imperialist, pseudo-anti-imperialist phenomenon, I I definitely agree with you uh, when you said that many of these actors are effectively serving the function of Vladimir Putin's um, geopolitical ambitions. And it's quite ironic, I agree with you again, uh, but it's quite ironic that so many of these uh, online celebrities, quote unquote socialists and so on, that they are um, kind of hitching themselves to this grossly um, reactionary, imperialist, ultra-violent, homophobic, anti-feminist, extremely reactionary right-wing regime. I mean, what does that say? Does that tell us that the left is, you know, flawed inherently, or is it more that these um, these opportunists are just, you know, going with what they think is popular and what, the, what can make them money and get them views? What do you think?
0: Well, I think it's a, a combination of those two factors, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think you've got the people who are, um, you know, taking um, money and, um, and promotion from, from RT and the whole Kremlin propaganda apparatus to advance their careers. And then I think, you know, you've got an awful lot of people who have just been fed the propaganda because it's ubiquitous on social media, and uh, they really buy it. And, you know, the, the particular irony of it is that, you know, anybody, they, they will bait as agents of um, of Western imperialism, anybody who's concerned with human rights in Syria, or or Burma, or Ethiopia, where you know they are the ones who have, uh, uh, you know, o- overtly and explicitly, um, uh, you know, allied with uh, you know, rival imperialisms, and <clears throat> you know, there's something to be said, I suppose. You know, you heard all this talk about. Um, you know, we were in a unipolar world after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, and we had to accept, you know, a multipolar world, and uh, where, you know, the U.S. would merely be one power among others, and, well, yes, I mean, that's an inevitability, of course, you know, U.S. imperialism is still, in terms of its military reach, it's by far the most powerful imperialism on the planet, but it seems to be in a state of decline and retreat at the moment, whereas, you know, Russian and Chinese imperialism are on the rise. <clears throat> um, and certainly, um, uh, you know, rallying around uh, one imperialism uh, in, in the name of fighting another is, you know, part of the pathology. But uh, uh, those who... Um, who are arguing for, you know, accepting a multipolar world have got to, uh, you know, they're also in danger of doing exactly that. And accepting that we're in a multipolar world as necessarily must imply a critique of the other Poles. There isn't anything about about the United States, which which, which makes, you know, U.S. imperialism uniquely evil. You know, I mean, the, the problem is imperialism And, you know, friend, from the uh, perspective of, uh, you know, the the Syrians who were getting bombed in Aleppo, you know, Russian imperialism was, uh, you know, the the evil that they were facing. You know, their lives aren't worth worth any less because the bombs that were falling on them happened to be Russian instead of American. And again, we can point out the irony that when uh, the U.S. actually was bombing a civilian population in Syria in the bombardment of Raqqa, the, uh, the, the, the so-called anti-war left in the West didn't even bother to protest it because there the U.S. was, you know, sort of at least on a de facto basis aligned with the Assad regime and actually serving the foreign policy aims of the Kremlin. I mean, that's how out of whack it's become that they don't even oppose U.S. imperialism when it commits genuine war crimes, if it happens while doing so to be aligned with the foreign policy interests of the Kremlin. That's how out of whack it's become. Is there anybody out there who's paying attention and wants to uh, join the uh, the discussion? Uh, Any questions, uh, comments from the audience?
2: I I don't
1: know if you have any thoughts, reactions I know what we're talking about is quite controversial
0: so I'm sure you have some thoughts Well, in the event that anybody's actually paying any attention to what we're saying today I'm sure we're going to be, uh, you know, getting a lot of pushback and we're going to be demonized as dupes of U.S. imperialism even though I just protested U.S. imperialism's bombardment of Raqqa and they didn't Life's little ironies. Any thoughts, any
1: comments? A couple of people on Zoom there. Okay, sorry, I can't access the last Yeah, I did two earlier. Um, it looks like we have we have six right now, so I just I'll put it in the chat to see if anybody knows. Oh okay. They didn't they didn't call a question on the challenge. Oh, okay.
3: Well i I have a question. It's about a uh, detail. Uh, uh, when you, uh, uh, if I listen it correctly, Bill, you thought you you mentioned uh, Jack L- London's book.
0: Yeah, that's right, the Iron Heel.
3: Can you can you type it
0: for me in the chat, please? Uh, if I can figure out how to do that, the Iron Heel, I R O N H E L. Iron Wheat heel like on a boot.
3: Ah okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well and thank you both for your presentation.
0: Not at all.
1: That's a very um, that book in fact you know um, riffs off the Paris commune as well. I, I don't I don't recall the general strike that you mentioned it's been a long time since I read it but what did what did uh, Stay with me from that book was toward the end. There's an uprising of workers in Chicago, and they declare something like the Chicago Commune, uh, modeled off the Paris Commune. Right? And then what happens is that the state sends in on railways troops, I don't know, the National Guard or Army. In any case, they all go in there and massacre the communists. So, yeah, it, it, Iron Heel is really, um, I mean, not having to, not, having, not engaging with Jack London's racism or support for eugenics, uh, very questionable and problematic uh, points of view in that sense, but if you just look at Iron Keel, I think it definitely um,
0: it saw a lot of things that were coming. Yes, um, indeed, very prescient book, yeah. And um, when you were talking about the general strike,
1: it also reminded me of War and Peace by Tolstoy. Um, on a number of occasions, he does talk about how the French and Russian soldiers across the lines of control would, you know, actually socialize uh, in a human way, uh, break down the barriers, um, you know, fraternize, go mingle, uh, you know, have meals with each other across the line. And I know that there have been um, many, many examples of, of, uh, of basically truces from below. I believe it was the Christmas Day truce 1914 during World War I. There were a number of others that
3: uh, general strikes against war
1: in the context of war, organized by the soldiers themselves, rank and file, as opposed to the officer corps. Of course, on each side, the French, Russian, or what have you, going to be you know, opposed to the soldiers coming together. But of course, um, that's the way forward. I totally agree with you, Bill, in your conclusion. I think not only with regard to R2P, but if we're talking about capitalism, we're talking about global warming. Remember a lot of these issues. I think that,
0: that indeed is the only way forward. So you're in a room in Tempe, Arizona, with um, two people in it? Yes. Uh huh. And there's how many more people uh, who are uh, joining us through Zoom? Right
1: now, we have six.
0: Six. Okay. All right. Well, that's something. <laughs> and uh, it's being recorded, so the uh, it can be posted online for future viewing. So maybe we're not completely spewing into a void here. So, anybody else among the uh, the six who are uh, doing this, who have anything to add, wish to challenge us? I certainly would love to be challenged.
1: Well, I can challenge you, Bill. Actually, um, I was thinking. Uh, Please, well, okay, so all right. So I mean, okay, so you know, when we were talking with Anna, we we're talking a bit about like the nationalists on the ground in these countries who identify with the post-colonial regime, or you know, in the case of Ethiopia, because there was only a brief period of occupation by the Italians. In general, Ethiopia has not been colonized well, by Europeans. That's right. But, um, so, for example, in India, in the post-colonial context there, there's a lot of pride for Modi and Hindutva, you know, an extremely reactionary, ultra-right movement. But you have this strange dynamic where I think I think the, the critical theories could help us understand, in social-psychological terms, how it is that people are identifying in a quote-unquote democratic way, majoritarian way, based on the culture that is coming from the top and bottom and so on. Um, But I mean, how do we deal with you know, like reactionary men in many cases who are you know, defending the crimes and atrocities of their of their home country regime or, you know, because they have pride in some sort of way. And how exactly and and my specific question is with regard to um, you know, differences across race or geographies you know, I mean, we're both Coming here from the United States, talking about contexts that are very different, very different places. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, some of the nuances
0: and difficulties of that. Well, I'm not entirely clear that I understand the question. I mean, how do you, uh, how do you, uh, what, what kind of approach do you take to, uh, you know, reactionary nationalists who are rallying around? Uh, around the uh, Narendra Modi in, 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 in India. Well, how do we uh, react to the MAGA heads here in the United States? I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, uh, mutatis mutandi, as they say, it's it's pretty much the same phenomenon. I mean, obviously, it's a somewhat different, uh, you know, context here, but certainly there are commonalities. <clears throat> Absolutely, there
1: are. There are a lot of commonalities. And in fact, yes. I think on both sides, like you can see, um, continuities of like um, counter-enlightenment philosophy as Marcuse analyzed in recent revolution and other other places. Um, You know, the reaction to German idealism, the reaction to uh, the Enlightenment, the the reaction to rationalism. If you look at Sternhill, you know, fascism is very much uh, obsessed with canceling 1789, you know, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, the idea of equality, the idea of Having a reason, reason in society and, and in the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's very much on the rise, especially with Trump. I mean, if you look at Trump, the Trump effect, not only here with the capital push or the attempted coup, um, but it's kind of it's it's very brazen. A lot of the things that uh, governments around the world are doing, like for example, I guess uh, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, refused to prosecute to the other day. Um, U.S. soldiers who have committed crimes in Afghanistan.
2: And uh, this
0: is kind of similar to the idea of the ICC. Ex- well, no, 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 the, the, the ICC launched an investigation. They, they recently put it on hold uh, <clears throat> because of the, uh, you know, the uh, situation on the ground in Afghanistan now kind of precludes um, continued investigations. They're, they're under pressure to launch it again. But they did, in fact, open an investigation, which is why the uh, the, the U.S. under Trump uh, placed sanctions on, um, on on the ICC investigators because you know they had actually opened an investigation into um, into into U.S. crimes in Afghanistan. Okay, I stand corrected.
1: Um, but I think that you know that same dynamic whereby George W. Bush refused to um, join the ICC for
0: that for right the, right?
1: Because you know they don't want to have any kind of accountability, responsibility. You know, just have the soldiers
0: go wherever
1: and just do anything but but so so I guess yeah so I guess one of the issues with RTP is you know we're looking at the crimes of of, of dictators and non- not authoritarians mainly in the global south um but that should also be complemented by you know in the according to the Trotskyist idea of neither Washington nor Moscow Beijing and so on and so on that's definitely complemented by an um, opposition to US imperialism and settler colonialism and white supremacy. I'm not saying you're not having that, but I'm just emphasizing the point that there needs to be both. Otherwise, you know, you can have things like um, turning, you know, like joining the government of the CIA to work against Assad or something that. They could, you know, there are certain lines that that could be followed that need to be, you know,
0: regulated, but Well, I mean, I don't the fact that there are, you know, uh, there is a support base for, you know, Modi in India, who the U.S. is not particularly, uh, you know, on the outs with at all, um, or, you know, Duterte in the Philippines or, you know, Bashar Assad in Syria. I mean, when, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, when um, Alvaro Uribe in Colombia was committing terrible crimes against his own people. He also had a support base within Colombia. There were you know, broad section, sectors of Colombia who were more afraid of the FARC than they were of Uribe, and then viewed uh, Uribe as their protector against the FARC. And it wasn't entirely the bourgeoisie, although of course it was. <clears throat> that was his strongest base of support. But uh, he, he had a degree of support within Colombia, and you know, the left wasn't confused about that. So uh, you know, I failed to see why, uh, why we should be confused uh, you know when a, a Duterte or a um, or a Bashar Assad, you know has uh, you know a degree of support within their own society. Well, sure, there's going to be you know, the more reactionary sectors who are uh, going to um, you know take the propaganda bait, but uh, out, those are not our natural allies. Our natural allies are the ones who are actually calling for. Um, uh, We're actually calling for democracy and revolution. Remember when the, the left used to stand for those things? I guess I'm just old school.
1: <clears throat> well, I mean, it's really interesting how some journalists and commentators have drawn parallels between the Syrian Revolution and the Spanish Revolution. Um, you know, how the revolutionaries were betrayed, how there was a, an embargo, um, how they were effectively crushed. Um, so it, it is something that, you know, persists over time. Unfortunately, it's like a, Hegel talked about the repetition of history as, as a tragedy.
2: Well,
3: that was Marx. Marks'
2: signal. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Any
3: thoughts from our viewers? Hi. Oh, have may. Uh me? Uh, c- can you hear me? Yes, if I
0: can. Yes.
3: Okay. Um, okay. I apologize in advance because I, I don't know if my uh, question or comment makes sense because uh, I I I don't work on your topics. I I work on philosophy of technology anthropocene, philosophical anthropology. So I could uh, heard with with interest your. Uh, presentation, but I'm not able to uh, to put your question rightly on your topics. I would like um, instead um, put you uh, both of you a question um, about um, something that uh, has to do with the, the title of this session. Uh, that is the uh, the question of uh, uh, the the responsibility to uh, to protect um i mean that uh, here and now the 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 concept of responsibility to protect or to care or take care um, is um is acquiring uh, a brand new shape and brand new status Uh, i mean our technological capability our technological power um is um is placing us as human beings for the first time in the uh, in the position to to really take a totally um, uh, a total care or to 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 be able to be total responsible about uh, uh, something or someone I mean uh, uh, an example of this is uh, the so-called geoengineering uh, example of uh, or another example, more concrete, is probably uh, some of the, um, some of the uh, tools, so to say, used by the governments uh, during the pandemics. I mean, for example, the mass contact tracing as an example of uh, surveillance ca- capitalism, so to say. So my, my question is, uh, um, what do you think about the, uh, the, the potential evolution of the concept of care of uh, responsibility to protect uh, within the current epochal uh, uh, framework due to the uh, in, increase increasing or increase of the of our technological power. I mean, uh, um, in, in, in my opinion, is emerging a new a brand new type of uh, care. I, I call it I call it techno care. And this techno care uh, make uh, uh, makes uh, clear or lets uh, um, emerge stand, stand out uh, the 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 possibility that the uh, the protection or care become becomes definitely definitely control or management or total management so i would i would i would, mm, I would uh, know your opinion about this potential aporia between uh, uh, a good intention protect care that uh, due to the technological learning power can become uh, uh, total management or control so sort if of a, a form of oppression, so to say oh thank you right, well, I, I'm not entirely I hope entirely it's clear
0: shorter. I'm not entirely sure I know what you mean by the word care in this context mm-hmm. um, I'm certainly very very concerned with uh, you know the whole um, uh, way that uh, technology, digital technology, uh, genetic engineering, uh, you know, mass surveillance um, are, uh, you know, uh, creating a, a situation of social control right down to the, 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 the most minute level of our lives. Like, you know, it's, it's extremely terrifying and it's certainly a part of the whole uh, global dystopia, a very, very big and central part of the whole global dystopia. I'm not entirely sure what the link is between that and what's under discussion. I mean, the kind of, uh, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, uh, uh, oppression that we see in places like Ethiopia and, um, and Syria is um, a lot more, um, it's much more of a crude, blunt instrument than, you know, this extremely, you know, hyper refined, very sophisticated, you know, mode of um, control that we see in the you know the techno security state here in the west i suppose you know one link is that uh, yeah, obviously you know the, these modes of social control are you know um uh you know escalated or or or, or lubricated by any uh you know um uh, military uh, intervention anywhere in the world of course you know but um so certainly, uh, there, there's the potential for, um, you know, in, in an atmosphere of uh, militarization for, you know, um, surveillance and so on to be, uh, to be escalated. And that again, is a part of the whole general, um, the general global dystopia that we're facing. But I'm not quite sure I'm really seeing that much of an explicit link between uh, the, bet- 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 this uh, kind of dystopia, which you're discussing, which is extremely real and an extremely pressing dilemma that we also need to be grappling with, but I'm not sure I'm quite getting the link between that and R two P. Do you want to respond, and
1: I can I can respond.
3: Uh, thank you. I I only I only uh, wanted to uh, emphasize the. Um, the, the example uh, out of politics, so to say, of what I mean. I mean, uh, mm, uh, for example, the the situation with the ecology or the responsibility to protect to protect the uh, environment. I, I don't know if you if you uh, know something about the so called geoengineering, this strategy. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, yes. Th- this is the classical example when uh, of of a tool, a mean, that is able to uh, concretely uh, protect uh, re- rewild nature, for example. But on, on the other side, this, um, uh, this good effect uh, can, can be destroyed, so to say, in nature's otherness. And so, I, I, with techno-care, I mean this, this kind of uh, uh, potential aporia, the possibility um, of uh, be- totally good intention and uh, uh, totally distorted effect so uh, i don't know if so this is my well point i mean or my look, curious. I, i've
0: acknowledged you know the uh you know the, there is a legitimate concern that uh, for instance the instating of a a no-fly zone over aleppo could have um Uh, you know, escalated into a a direct U.S.-Russian military confrontation, which in turn could have escalated the world war. I'm not dismissing that concern. And similarly, uh, uh, you know, if um, hopefully we're not going to live to see it, but if in fact, um, you know, the People's Republic of China does move militarily against Taiwan uh, and and the U.S. gets involved in defense of Taiwan, I mean, I acknowledge that that is terrifying potential for for escalation so i'm not dismissing those concerns whatsoever i'm just arguing that um the way to respond to them is not to you know rally around russia and china who are also you know problematic actors to say the least
1: yeah um let me respond also to our question i think um... So there's a lot here. Um, in the first place, I think that you know, like the culture of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that, um, it has kind of it's interesting. Maybe it has a dialectical effect, effect on these kinds of questions. For for instance, you know, Instagram and all this is like very obsessed with image and superficiality and what Deborah would have called the commodity or the spectacle. Um, you know, basically Adorno and Heimert's culture industry, right? Instrumental rationality, all of this. Right? Uh, definitely the, the technosphere is, I would say, massively, massively encouraging this in the youth and everything. So no doubt. So I think in that sense, uh, the techno-culture that we have is very much, you know, uh, a reactionary one. It's not helping us to open our eyes, open our horizon and see what's going on. On the other hand, with globalization and so on, with these technologies, we do have things like, you know, journalists, correspondents, uh, you know, Time seeing what's going on um, in different parts of the world, which you know can have progressive and humanistic um, implications and effects. So, that so it's kind of it could go both ways. Um, and I totally do hear you about the, the dynamic of good intentions leading to terrible outcomes. Like, if you look at Frankenstein, the book, right, or if you look at you know genetic engineering, Jurassic Park, very much based off of Frankenstein, and actually, it made me think of uh, one of the um the Avengers movies in Marvel, sorry to go pop culture, but uh, Iron Man wants to have peacekeepers, you know, to just keep the peace, uh, you know, just to, you know, just to, to prevent horrible things from happening. But then something happens, they combine, they become like this this ultra machine called Ultron. And it's kind of similar to Terminator and all these things where, you know, the technology kind of takes over and uh, the message is buried, right? Um, so I think that that's definitely a concern. Like to Bill's point just a few moments ago about you know a lot of the resistance to the new no-fly zone in Aleppo and elsewhere in Syria was at least stated that you know want to prevent World War III between Russia and the U.S. Um, so yeah, I, I think that you know, not only that, but there's also the aspect of like the white man's burden, right, where you know quote unquote good intentions to that can be based off of humanism and cosmopolitanism and egalitarian solidarity and so on, can lead to something else. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Like, um, you know, I, don't, I mean, I, I can't really think of an example right now, but I can definitely see how that could work. Like, it it starts with good intentions, and then you know it has some good effects and some successes, but then it leads to something different, like a, like some kind of a colonial occupation. Or something like that. I can see what you're saying. So I think, yeah, I think we're, what we're doing here on this panel is kind of presenting it Initial uh,
0: an, an initial proposal, but you know, not not at all final. I mean, I'm not even the whole question of you know intentions is kind of a difficult one because I think that even you know within the Beltway establishment, which is you know increasingly been uh, embracing the notion of humanitarian interventionism for, you know, for the past uh, 30 years or so, I think there's kind of, you know, a a divide or a tension between those like uh, Samantha Power, who, you know, probably really do have good intentions, but they just don't have, uh, you know, anywhere, any kind of critique of of the Western powers themselves. There's certainly nowhere near a sufficient one. And, you know, you've got, you know, the outright charlatans, uh, you know, like the people in the Bush administration and, and Dick Cheney, who actually, you know, they spoke about, uh, you know, the rights of uh, women in Afghanistan when they were launching the, uh, the when they were launching the intervention uh, in Afghanistan 20 years ago. But obviously their motives were, um, I think, pretty clearly uh, elsewhere, you know, very, very much so. Um So uh, the the question of you know trying to parse the uh, the intentions of the people in power is uh, in in launching so-called humanitarian interventions can be kind of a tricky one. And ultimately, uh, I'm not sure that the it's the intentions which really matter all that much. But you know, it's the actual uh, behavior. I mean, you know, imperialism can't really behave other than how it does. You know, kind of in the nature of the beast. And in terms of a uh, you know an instance in which you know quote unquote good intentions have left uh, have led to to terrible outcomes. I mean, really, uh, the very first instance in which a, uh, in in which the nomenclature of humanitarian intervention was used, and there actually was a so-called humanitarian intervention, was um, in uh, Yugoslavia. I mean, the uh, uh, going back almost 30 years ago now, where the initially, you know, there were calls for some kind of what we would today call um, R2P, although the, I don't believe the phrase had been coined then, uh, you know, around uh, around Bosnia. Um, and then it was finally with the, um, you know, there was limited Western and, in fact, Russian intervention, um, you know, to restrain the warring powers on the ground in uh, in Bosnia in uh, with 1995. Um, and then finally, you had, uh, you know, with when, when, when Serbia launched its, you know, internal ethnic cleansing of uh, the Kosovo region in, in the south, then, you know, NATO actually did launch a bombing campaign. Against um, against uh, Yugoslavia against Serbia, and with uh, you know the predictable toll in um, in civilian casualties, and uh, in notoriously the um, there was a uh, I believe well, a Chinese television building in um, in Belgrade which was bombed, really? which could sort of be, a, be you know supposedly as collateral damage, supposedly accidentally. But, you know, that instance can sort of see the, the, the beginning of the whole geopolitical shift where, uh, you know, going back to uh, Nixon opening China and then during the Sino-Soviet split and so on, China had sort of been de facto in the Western camp against Russia. And that's when it began to, you know, switch and into the, you know, and, and sort of closed ranks with, with Russia once again against the West. And, uh, you know, less notoriously, there was uh, the NATO bombing of the, um, of the petrochemical works that Panchevo right outside of... Um, Right outside of Belgrade, releasing all these toxins into the atmosphere and so on. I mean, that was uh, you know a war crime by any by any definition, and I certainly you know I readily acknowledge that. And I'm not the glib or utopian about about the notion of humanitarian intervention. On the contrary, I'm quite skeptical about it. But uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm arguing that that the um, that the response. Of merely, you know, rallying around the regimes which are committing mass atrocity crimes, um, and you know, and dismissing the people on the ground who are demanding some kind of intervention on their behalf as, you know, dupes and agents of the West is not a helpful response. It's a very counterproductive response. And I'm not, I'm not proffering any easy answers here. Okay, I don't have any easy answers. All I've got is difficult questions. Sorry. And I ultimately think that, you know, that people who pose difficult questions are playing a more um, helpful role in this world than those who are proffering easy answers. Very nice, Bill. So um, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, um, if, at, uh, if you look at, if
1: you I'm know, doing some research for this presentation I was looking at some of the past interventions um, and there are very few that have been identified as like, Pure humanitarian interventions. Um, you know, obviously we have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which had nothing at all to do with humanitarianism mm-hmm. or RTP at all. Um, obviously, the invasion of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. I mean, you can say that there uh, there was a discourse of humanitarianism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But very much secondary, tertiary, or or less. You know. Um, but if we do look at the the pure ones that I that I that I was reading about, they were uh, Tanzania's intervention in Uganda in the 70s to oust EDME.
0: That's uh, right. So Vietnam's... Yeah, uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, yeah. yeah. And the, the U.S. in Yugoslavia in 1999 and the U.S. in uh, in Somalia, and I believe it was uh, 91? Three. 93. Long 93, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, correct, 93, yeah. Well, I don't know about the Somali one. I, I wouldn't. I
1: would have to do research on that one. I mean, I, I did read Black Hawk Down a long time ago. But of course, that's that. Um, but what I was saying is that uh, basically, that um, what was it? China and the West condemned Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia as serving the aims of Soviet imperialism. I found that quite ironic. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, <laughs> it kind of sounds very similar to the Putin, Putin crowd. You know, saying that you know. Uh, the, the Syrians who are calling for R two P and or the people outside who are supporting them in that are also agents of imperialism. I mean, it's complicated. It's just... Okay, just a All right. Um, any final
0: questions or comments, Agustino? anything else bill uh, i said everything i have to say Okay. thanks bill i appreciate it thanks Not for thanks
3: it for was you. interesting
0: definitely well i hope that once the uh once the video is uh, you know uh, posted online with a permanent link we'll have uh maybe more than six people who will view it that'll be good
1: <laughs> definitely all right bill thanks a lot
0: Okay, so uh, you just heard one hour and 20 minutes of the uh, panel, The Responsibility to Protect in the 21st Century, held at the Biennial International Herbert Marcuse Society Conference at the University of Arizona in Tempe back on October 9th of this year with me participating via Zoom from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, from whence I am ranting at this precise moment, featuring myself, Bill Weinberg, and Javier Sethness. So, uh, I hope that you got something out of it. If so, shares, of course, are always appreciated. Spread the word. Maybe we can begin to make a uh, just a little bit of a ripple of impact. Sooner or later, in any event. <clears throat> This has been, as always, Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com countervortex. Join The Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.